All right, y'all ready to talk about manhood? Masculinity? Somebody was like, so does this mean you think you're an expert on masculinity? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I am definitely not. Just like I wasn't an expert on dating for five weeks. Y'all found that out the hard way. And, uh, and so uh, we're learning together here. Um, and we're going to talk about masculinity. It can't be more awkward than the month of May was around here. So uh, dating and sex and marriage and all that. It's over. Are y'all happy? I know I'm happy. So I know my wife's happy. She doesn't have to worry what I'm going to say. Uh, so uh, we're, uh, we're going to uh, talk about masculinity. It was so interesting to me that um, the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing happened right about the time we were rolling this series out. And people were like, I had somebody ask me, so did the Caitlyn Jenner thing uh, like spark the idea for this series? And absolutely not. We had planned this series a, a long time ago. Actually, what sparked the idea for this series was when I was asking for stories from people about their dating experiences, and I kept getting emails from young women telling me about their fathers. And if they, you know, I got emails thanking God for the fathers that were present and the ways that a present father can instill a sense of self-worth and value in a young woman and how that helped her know her worth as she began dating and looking for a potential husband. And then I got other kinds of emails about fathers that were absent and the effect that an absent or distant or abusive father can have on a young person, especially a young woman. Uh, it's, it, it's impossible to overstate the effects of that in terms of the way she sees herself when she goes out to find a potential partner. Uh, and the ramifications of that can be devastating. And so that's where I got the idea for this series was, man, we got to talk about masculinity for our young men. we got to talk about what it means to be a father. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do for the next uh, several weeks. And uh, I invite you into this journey. If you are a married woman, I am so sorry you've been completely left out of worship for the last six weeks, seven weeks. Uh, we talked about singles and dating, and then we talked about, uh, we're talking about masculinity. Married women, y'all hang in there with me, okay? We'll get around. We'll talk about uh, how to tolerate your husband in July. How about that? So, okay. So uh, the, the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing was interesting to me um, because of uh, the media circus and the backlash from it. So uh, uh, on all sides, there was just this vehemence. So people supporting Caitlyn Jenner called her uh, a cultural icon, a hero, and people, mostly Christians, who did not support Caitlyn Jenner and uh, her coming out party um, kind of had a, a, a more visceral reaction against it. And often that bordered on hateful if you followed it online at all. And, you know, the question that was running around in my head was, you know, what would we do? What kind of congregation are we creating if Caitlyn Jenner were to walk through the door, if all six foot two inches of her, you know, this former Olympian, the formerly greatest athlete in the world in 1976, Bruce Jenner was declared the world's greatest athlete. They put him on a Wheaties box, and now, you know, he's on the cover of, of Vogue as Caitlyn, or what magazine was it? Thank you, Vanity Fair, as Caitlin, <laughs> whatever. And, uh, and so, you know, everybody's, like, everybody's shocked, and there's just so much confusion. And I think, uh, you know, the whole Caitlyn Jenner uh, thing is so interesting because, you know, as I said online, I would hope that we are creating the kind of congregation where if she walked in the door, you know, she'd be greeted with a hug or a handshake and an invitation to come and sit with us because you look like you're here by yourself, or I hope that she would be shown, you know, mercy and, and love, and I I hope that she would be invited to come and participate and get bread and juice like the rest of us because Romans 3.23 says all are broken and fall short of the glory of God. I hope that's the kind of congregation we're creating. 
But aside from that, when I look at the situation, I just see a lot of pain and a lot of confusion on all sides. I see pain in Caitlin's eyes in her journey. I see a lot of pain in the people who react against Caitlin as well. And when I talk to young men, I feel like um, the, what's happened with Bruce and Caitlin is uh, obviously it's exacerbated. It's a, it's a greater sort of thing that's in the spotlight. But in a lot of ways, young men are dealing with some of the similar struggles about what does gender mean? What does it mean to be a guy these days? What does it mean to be a male? In particular, what does it mean to be a man of God? Because everything in our culture has changed so quickly, especially in regards to sexuality and gender, that our ability, especially the male ability to cope with such change, it, the change has outpaced our coping ability. And so we are in this weird, confusing, in-between land, and a lot of guys feel a lot of disorientation. Now, not Caitlyn Jenner levels of disorientation, but still confusion and disorientation about what it means to be a man, because so much of what it used to be, what it used to mean to be a man, is now just called being a jerk, right? That's how fast it's changed that a generation ago, the stuff that we could identify and list and say, these are the qualities of a good man, now that means you're a chauvinist. And so guys are caught in between. And I'm not saying the changes that have happened over the last century are bad. I am so thrilled to be raising a daughter in 2015 rather than 1815. I am so thrilled with the advances that women have made. I'm thrilled women can hold property, women can vote and hold office and be doctors and lawyers, and this is, I believe, the will of God. It is representative of the kingdom of God. We here at The Story believe that women can do anything men can do. So I, I'm, I'm not saying that shouldn't have happened. I'm just saying that men in the process have have gotten confused and have felt a lack or a loss of identity. So uh, hopefully with this series, we can clear some of that up, not by looking at any modern philosophies, but by looking at the ancient scriptures, at what it meant to be a man of God in Bible times, ironically enough. I was talking to a young man uh, this week, and he emailed me his uh, dating experiences, and this is kind of a half-dating, half-masculinity email, but he said he went on two different dates with two different women in the same week, and on the first date with the first woman, he was the perfect gentleman. He opened every door. He, um, uh, he opened her car doors, he opened the restaurant doors, he sat her down at the dinner table and then picked up the tab when dinner was over and he walked her to her door afterward and didn't try to kiss her or lay hands on her or anything like that. And, uh, and so he said, I'd love to see you again. She said, sure, call me. And he called her and she didn't answer his, his call. And then she uh, responded to his voicemail with a text message and she said, hey, you're really nice. I'm just really sorry. I don't need a man who opens doors and picks up the tab. I'm looking for an equal and someone who sees me as an equal. And then the second date came around. Some, some of the women are like, could I have his number? No. I, I, <laughs> no. Uh, he's a nice guy, though. Uh, the, so the second date came around, 
And, uh, and so he decided to play it cool on the second day. This was just a few days after. And he didn't open any doors. He didn't pick up the check. He asked the waiter for separate checks, put it right down the middle, whatever. And, uh, you know, he didn't even walk her to her door when the date was over. Y'all know where this is going. Uh, <laughs> at, the, at the end of the date, he, he was really into this girl. He told her he'd like to see her again. She's like, sure, call me, whatever. He calls her, no answer. He texts her, no answer. They have a mutual friend who uh, he asks, you know, what's up with this girl? And she said, oh, well, and I'm sorry. She just told me that she'd really like to date a real gentleman. She'd like to date somebody who opens doors and somebody who picks up the check. And so this is representative of the conundrum that men are in right now. It is, we're in an in-between land. We're in the now but not yet kind of thing that uh, men don't know how to properly behave. I hope that this series can clear some of that uh, confusion up around uh, gender and masculinity uh, for men. Um, there's a couple things that I want to be sure and say uh, what this series is not. This series is uh, not uh, about putting women in their place. As I said before, we at The Story believe that women can be pastors and leaders and don't need a man over them and all that stuff. Uh, if you disagree with that for whatever reason, uh, send me an email, let's have coffee, and we'll, I'll talk you through it. But um, that's what we believe. The second thing that this series is not about is this series is not about uh, saying that God is male. Uh, we don't believe God is exclusively male or exclusively female. We believe the God of the Bible transcends gender. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 say that in the image of God, God created them male and female. God created them in the Imago Dei, in the image of of God. And so uh, that's what we're saying uh, with this series. Now, um, while God is not specifically male, Jesus is. Jesus is very male. Uh, I think Jesus was probably a man's man. I think we don't want to talk about this because of political correctness or whatever. But I think Jesus was a man amongst men. I think he was kind of an alpha. Uh, and I think he was aggressive and bold and things that traditionally men were. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at men, uh, at Jesus and the manhood of Jesus some. Now, you wouldn't know that Jesus was just a regular guy by art and movies. I think we have a baby picture. Can we skip to that baby picture, Michael? There it is. So... It's like a super baby. Like, it's not even like a real baby boy. Like, that's not a kid that poops his diapers, but Jesus did, you know? Like, Jesus was a regular baby. And then when he grows up and becomes a man, uh, the art doesn't get any more accurate. I mean, look what we've done to Jesus in adulthood. Look at this Jesus. Like, he's got eyeliner, and like, I think he's got like a perm or something. And, He's really pale. He might be wearing some makeup, like those glassy kind of blue eyes. We've kind of effeminized Jesus. And this is just one of the pictures. But even in the movies and stuff, if, if Jesus isn't effeminate, then he's like a really hot, pretty boy in some of these <laughs> movies. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that's the image. That's the picture the Bible paints of the real Jesus. I think Jesus uh, probably wasn't. Uh, a, a preppy kind of a pretty boy guy. I think he was uh, a more of a, a man's man. This is what we really know about Jesus. We know he was a small town boy. And we know he was from a rural small town called Nazareth. We know Jesus was a dark-skinned Palestinian Jewish man. 
We know that Jesus was probably short and stocky. The average man uh, who lived at that time and place, the average Jewish man, was five foot three inches. Is anybody here five feet three inches tall? Anybody on the front row? Five feet three? All right. Uh, anybody here? You? All right, stand up. Let's see you. This is Jesus right here, you guys. <laughs> it's five foot three inches. Thank you. This is Jesus. He's, so in the movies, oftentimes he's like tall and thin and like taller than the other people. Uh, and uh, actually, Jesus was probably short and stocky. Jesus was a tecton, which means he was a construction worker. We call it a carpenter. Carpenter doesn't really do the word justice. Jesus was a laborer, a builder, a stonemason. He picked up stones and carried them everywhere. And maybe he worked with wood. There's not a lot of wood in the region. You probably couldn't have made a whole living out of just being a carpenter. At the time, he was probably more of a stonemason and a builder. Uh, that's what tecton means, a day laborer. Jesus was also a couch surfer, uh, somewhat uh, temporarily homeless. So he slept in people's houses uh, here and there, uh, semi-homeless. Uh, Jesus' best friends were fishermen. Do any of you know a man who's a fisherman? All right, probably kind of a, a guy's guy. And, and, you know, if your friends are all fishermen, you're probably kind of the same type. Jesus uh, ate a lot. And Jesus drank a lot. He ate enough at parties to be called a glutton, and he drank enough at parties to be called a drunk by those who sought to discredit him. So now tell me, does this person look like a small-town uh, Jewish, Palestinian, dark-skinned uh, stonemason who lifted huge stones for a living and built houses. Does this guy look like any of that? You think he couch surfed anywhere? No, probably not. This is not the Jesus I find in Scripture. Now, anthropologists did some work to try and figure out what an average Palestinian Jew looked like in the first century because the Bible doesn't really say much of anything about the appearance of Jesus, which would lead us to believe that Jesus was probably an average-looking Palestinian Jew. If there was anything extraordinary about his appearance, the Gospels probably would mention it. And so, uh, so the anthropologists did some digging and studying of the ancient, you know, the corpses and things they've dug up, the bodies, and and, and figured out what, by the facial structure, an average first century Palestinian Jew would have looked like to know what Jesus might have looked like. And this is what they came up with. This is probably more like the Jesus of the Bible than uh, the images that we have grown accustomed to. So this Jesus uh, built fires. This Jesus grilled meat in the Scriptures. This Jesus told stories. He was smart, but not a scholar. He was brilliant, but not academic. This Jesus did all the things that men do. He probably scratched and spit and snorted and blew the thing out of his nose. He did all the things that guys do because Jesus was a guy. And we never talk about Jesus the guy anymore. We talk about Jesus the God, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, whatever. I want us to think about Jesus the man. Men, I want Jesus to be a man you relate to. I want you to see Jesus as a man you'd hang out with, a man you would legitimately follow. Not some pie-in-the-sky, pale-skinned, uh, you know, kind of effeminized version of Jesus. Men, I want you to identify with this Jesus. I think he was worth looking up to. So, 
We think when Jesus was in his early 20s that he left his home with his mom and his siblings in uh, Nazareth, and he went out to make his own way in the world, as young men should do. They go out, even taking a risk, and they go out to do their own thing. Jesus goes to Capernaum from Nazareth, and he kind of starts his own business as a a construction worker, as a builder. And he goes to Capernaum because Capernaum is where the work was. Jesus followed the work around in his early life, like many men do. And so Capernaum was a bustling boardwalk city, and celebrities lived there, and, and religious and Roman elites lived in Capernaum, and there was construction everywhere. People, it was a port city, so people were moving from all over the world to come and, and live in Capernaum. There was congestion problems everywhere. So that sound familiar, Houston? So yeah, this is, Capernaum is Houston. Jesus moves to this global city because that's where the work was, and he makes his headquarters there. Uh, That's where uh, he operates out of uh, in his 20s because of the construction. So Jesus lived there. He worked there. uh, And for a while, ministry was Jesus' second career. It was kind of an afterthought. He moonlit as a rabbi after working all day uh, building stuff. And I think his older cousin, John the Baptist, was the one working on him. John was already being successful in ministry, and I think when they got together for Sunday afternoon lunch, every time they did, John the Baptist was like, leave that construction job. It's time to start your ministry. And I think one day Jesus showed up at the River Jordan, John the Baptist baptized him, and Jesus was in full-time ministry. And the movement they began together, Jesus and John were partners, uh, would kill them both. John's head ended up on a platter. And Jesus ended up on a cross, but it revolutionized the world, these two guys, especially Jesus' ministry. No one remembers Caesar's name. No one celebrates and gives gifts on Herod's birthday. But these two rabbis, these Palestinian Jewish rabbis, changed the world. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5. If you'll get your Bibles and turn with me to Mark 5, that's the story we're going to dig into today. If you don't have your Bible today, that's okay. You can use your phone app or you can follow along on the screen behind me. I think the study guide also has the scripture on it. You can use that. Let's learn about Jesus the man today. Mark 5, verse 21. It's where I will begin. Okay. Jesus crossed the lake again, and on the other side... A large crowd gathered around him on the shore. So Jesus is coming back from Samaria. He has gone on his first ministry tour to the Samaritans and made disciples there. And now he's coming back uh, to his hometown of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders, came forward. When Jairus saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him, My daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. That is later in the story. Y'all just need to know that for now. A swarm of people were following Jesus, crowding in on him. A woman was there who'd been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse Because she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes. She was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. 
Her bleeding stopped immediately, and she sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. At that very moment, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in a crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, Don't you see the crowd pressing against you, yet you asked, Who touched me? But Jesus looked around carefully to see who had done it. This woman, full of fear and trembling, came forward. Knowing what had happened to her, she fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. He responded, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. I am absolutely fascinated with this woman. It is a uh, sort of a random uh, story that doesn't get a lot of attention in the Gospels, but this woman's story is remarkable to me. She has suffered with this bleeding hemorrhage for 12 years. That is a long time. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been suffering with this bleeding, and it's unclear exactly what her condition is, but the connotation in the Scripture is that it has something to do with a reproductive issue. And so um, the most common medical uh, explanation is that she suffered from a condition called, I'm going to try to say this, menometrorrhagia. Menometrorrhagia. Uh, it is a, a condition that women sometimes get uh, that causes irregular, heavy, painful, uh, and kind of random, uh, unpredictable uh, periods. And so this is her condition. And what we know about this condition is that the longer you have this condition medically, the more you suffer, the more you bleed, the more it hurts. And so this woman has had this condition for 12 years. And like the story says, did you hear the line where it said she tried everything, but it kept getting worse? And uh, doctors think this is what she had. And doctors describe the uterus of a woman with menometrorrhagia as a chronic weeping sore. Her insides were a chronic weeping sore. For 12 years, and it was only getting worse. She had spent all of her money, and uh, the little detail the story gives us about her life actually opens a window into much more that must have been going on with her, because the story says she only spent what she had. It doesn't say that she spent what her family had, or what her father had, or what her husband had. She spent what she had left, which means this woman was alone in the world. Because we know that in those times, this was a pre-feminist movement deal. So the women there, their only social safety net was their father's protection and later their husband's protection and maybe later their son's protection. Women absolutely depended on the men in their families to protect them. And this woman had no one. She is alone in the world for 12 years with this awful condition. We know that she was probably anemic by this time in her life. If you've ever known someone suffering with anemia, we have all kinds of medicines for this now. They didn't have those then. It was generally a low iron diet in that region then, and given that this woman was broke anyway, even if there was food high in iron, she wouldn't have been able to afford it. So she was probably very pale, very sullen look. She was probably dizzy, lightheaded. She was probably suffering with constant headaches caused by anemia. We know that this woman was probably infertile because of her condition uh, reproductively. She was obviously quite challenged, and uh, she was probably unmarried because of her condition and because of her infertility. Now, for a woman in those days, having children was everything. 
And even today, women who struggle with fertility and couples that struggle with fertility, it's a nightmare. It's awful. But then it was magnified because your own life, your own well-being depended on it. Uh, and, and, you know, your future depended on it. So uh, this woman was probably uh, infertile, was probably single. Even if she was married, uh, she was probably estranged from her husband because of the biblical laws against her condition. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Leviticus here. But Leviticus was the Bible then. And actually, for the whole month of July, we're talking about Leviticus. So y'all get excited. Everybody's excited about that, right? Everybody's like, I'm taking July off. That's it. No, it's going to be interesting and exciting, I promise. But Leviticus 15 says over and over again, a woman who suffers with this condition, a woman who constantly or irregularly bleeds, is impure, is unholy, is unclean, according to the ritual of temple law. So she is not only not allowed to go into the house of God and be a part of the people of God like we are today, she is not allowed to touch anyone or be touched by anyone for seven days after her last bleeding. Well, if she's bleeding constantly, this woman hasn't touched anyone or been touched by anyone for 12 years. Can you imagine what that's like? Can you imagine how she felt about herself, how much she longed to just be accepted and loved and touched and embraced? But her condition and the biblical rules against it would not allow such a thing. So uh, anyone and anything she comes into contact with is also ritually unclean. So that's the danger you ran if you were around her, is that you could be also cut off from the community for a time if you came into contact with this woman. So for 12 years, she suffers with this. She's out of money. She's out of hope, except she's heard about this five foot, three inch construction worker who heals people. And he's from here in Capernaum. She thinks, maybe, maybe if I could just get close to him, maybe if I could just touch his clothes, the Bible says. It's a poor translation of what the actual word is. The Bible for clothes, the word for clothes in the story is tzitzit. Uh, it's T-Z-I-T, Z-I-T, tzitzit. Um, and it is a holy garment that uh, an ordained rabbi like Jesus would wear. And for Jesus, this holy garment kind of had a fringe on the end of it, and it signified his belonging in the line of David. So this was a sacred thing. It signified Jesus' place in the house of David. No one was allowed to touch a rabbi's tzitzit except for the rabbi's family. That was punishable by death if you touched a rabbi's tzitzit. So this woman's thinking, if I can just get close to him, if I can just come into contact with him or with his tzitzit, then maybe I would be healed. So she, we are told, elbows her way through the crowd. I'm sure she's in some kind of a disguise or she's shielding her identity from view so no one outs her. You can imagine that she's concerned um, of being found out. But she snakes her way through the crowd and she finally sneaks up behind Jesus and she touches the edge of that garment. 
And immediately she feels a healing taking place inside of her. She feels that weeping sore being healed. And Jesus, too, feels this power going out of him, kind of like a superhero of some kind. He, like, feels it just being zapped from him. Jesus turns around and said, who was that? Who touched my robe? And his disciples are like, are you kidding me, man? There's a thousand people here. Who hasn't touched you today? Like they're all pressing in on him. It's a huge, chaotic mob of a crowd. And the disciples are like, let's just keep going. Everybody's trying to touch you. They're touching us to get to you. Let's just go. And Jesus says, no, I need to know who this was. And he stops and he scans the crowd until this woman throws herself at his feet. And I love this part of the story because the Bible says, the story says, she told him, the whole truth. What does that mean? She told him the whole truth. With this noisy crowd around, Jesus must have had to get down to hear her as she was on the ground and she told him everything. What do you think she told him? What stories of her past? What miserable tales do you think she told him about her suffering, her 12 years of alienation? What whole truth do you think she let him in on? It was something. Jesus sees that she's full of fear. And why is she full of fear? Because Jesus could have her killed for what she just did. She just made Jesus ritually unclean. Now Jesus can't go into the synagogue. Not only Jesus, but everyone she touched when she was elbowing her way through the crowd. They all see who she is now. They all know that they've been made unclean. Jesus could have easily said, go pick up your stones, guys. This is it. She broke the rules. But she tells him the whole truth, and Jesus stands up, and Jesus says, daughter, daughter, your faith has saved you, daughter, And in calling her daughter, he exonerates her from the crime of touching his garment. Because who could touch a rabbi's garment? Family. They're the same age, probably, more or less, late 20s, early 30s. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has saved you. And he tells the whole crowd in this, she is okay. He releases her. From that pain, daughter, Jesus calls her. Now, in doing this, Jesus is saying, I know everyone else has abandoned you, but I am adopting you. I'm stopping to adopt you in this moment, daughter. Why? Jesus is on his way to Jairus' house. Jairus was a powerful man in Capernaum. Jesus' career is up and coming. Jairus could help Jesus become more influential. He could help Jesus grow his following as the leader of the the religious community in Capernaum. He's going to heal Jairus' daughter. Why stop and adopt someone who could give him nothing in return? Why give his power to someone who's powerless and can do nothing for him? Why? The only answer that makes sense is because that's what God does. That's the nature of our God. Our God is a father to the fatherless. Our God takes care and protects the widows and the defenseless. This is what it means to be a man of God. This is what it means to be 
a man. Period. I um, spoke with a couple of men in preparation for this series, and a uh, few of you are uh, really impressive. I thank you for sharing your stories of uh, what it means to be a man or a father or whatever. A couple stories really stood out to me. There was one man uh, who has uh, children, but they are grown and out of the house, and he goes and spends an hour every week mentoring a young boy in the second grade. He has no real reason or benefit to do this. He has a high-powered legal career. It doesn't help his legal career or advance his identity or place in the world at all. And that time for every lawyer is money. That is not a billable hour when you are mentoring a second grader. Uh, he, the, the man is black. The child is white. The man is wealthy. The child is poor. Why spend all this time every single week mentoring, pouring your life, adopting someone in a way? Because that boy has no father, and our God is a father to the fatherless, and that's what it means to be a man of God. There's a, another man uh, who's here today, uh, actually, who shared a story with me about a nursing home that he visits Every Sunday afternoon, he used to go there and visit his own grandpa. Then his grandpa died a couple of years ago, and he kept going back to visit with the other older people there. If you ever spend any time in a nursing home, you know how painful and depressing that can be. And so he keeps going back, playing dominoes with the old men and old women at the nursing home. And they, you know, two o'clock on Sundays is the highlight of their life. Why? Why spend an hour every weekend when weekends are so precious to us? Why not go out and be a young man and do the things young men supposedly do? Go out and have a good time. Go out and do something for yourself. Why? Because our God is a protector of widows. Our God looks after widowers and those who are alone. This is what it means to be a man of God. So... Uh, Guys, I want to just ask you a question today as we're wrapping up this first part of the series. I want to ask you, when was the last time you gave your power away without expecting or asking anything in return? When you were thinking, I don't have any power, I'm just a cog in the machine, I'm just a guy, whatever. I sit in a cubicle 40 hours a week. I'm telling you, men, you have power. Your time is power. Your voice is power. Your righteous indignation against injustice is power. Your money is power. How are you using it, men? How are you stepping up to be men of God who care for widows and father the fatherless? Because this is what it means to be men of God. How are you living outside yourselves and sacrificing for the sake of others as Jesus did for you, I want to challenge you to look for one way this week to go outside your normal routine and use your power, your voice, your money for something greater than you. To look after someone that can give you nothing in return. To champion someone who can give you no benefit. And I'm going to tell you this. I don't want you to do this for selfish reasons, but I want to tell you that a result of living that way will be that all that confusion about what does it mean to be a man, all that confusion that we whine about all the time, it will dissipate, it will go away, and you will find what you've been looking for. You will become the man you've wanted to be all along. 
by looking and living outside of yourself and giving yourself for the sake of others. This is what you've been looking for. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Guys, this is what it means to be men of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time and for this uh, instruction Jesus gives us in this passage. For this woman who so courageously steps forward and says, heal me. And for Jesus who says, daughter, you are healed. Help us to live in the same way. Help us, God, to look after those in our midst that maybe can't give us anything in return for it. Just because that's what it means to be your children, men of God. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.